0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with Reverend Moore and Rabbi Cooper. They are co-authors of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. You may not have known there was one. We'll talk about it when they join us later this hour. We'll also hear from Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about um, the legal challenges to the outcome of the election. As you know, Trump and his supporters have waged legal battles all across the country to defeat Joe Biden. Is it possible even if they win their battles? And how likely is it that they will, even if there are examples of actual fraud? Well, Americans uh, deserve... Election results they can trust. And we'll uh, give you a rundown when he joins us at the top of the next hour of today's program. First, to look at some of the national headlines. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has rejected criticism of remarks he made this week in which he said that the State Department would ensure a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. He says there's an awful lot of work to do. We're reminding everyone that all the votes haven't been counted. He was speaking to Brett Baer's special report on Fox News. He said we need to make sure the legal process is fully complied with and then America will uh, do what it does best. We'll have a leader in the White House at noon on January 20th and we will execute American foreign policy. Well, Fox News had projected that. Democrat Joe Biden had been elected to be the 46th president of the United States. The White House has been accused of attempting to hamper the incoming administration by refusing to concede the presidential race. I'm very confident that we will have a good transition, that we will make sure that whoever is in office on on, um, noon, the 20th of January, has all the tools readily available so that we don't skip a beat with the capacity to keep Americans safe. Pompeo insisted that's what I was speaking to today. I think it's important for not only the American people, but for the whole world, especially our adversaries, to know that we will achieve this in a way that, that's deeply consistent with the American tradition and keeps us all safe here at home, end quote. Well, later in the interview, Pompeo stated that if I'm an adversary of the U.S., I would not think for a moment that in this time between now and January that this was the moment that they might have an opportunity it's simply not the case. President Trump and our team are on watch. In other developments, a GOP senator says that he'll step in if Joe Biden uh, doesn't receive intel briefings by Friday. Now, the GSA has to certify the uh, election before that happens. He's going to step in, uh, defining that apparently as giving him access to intel information. And a Biden lawyer is accusing Trump of trying to interfere with the um, inevitable as the transition awaits GSA funds. There are also funds that come along with those briefings when the uh, election is called. Biden is taking calls with leaders of Britain, France, Germany, as the transition gets underway, and his transition team is not ruling out legal action if the Trump administration doesn't cooperate. Well, Black Lives Matter co-founders message to uh, the president-elect Joe Biden, if in fact he is, we want something for our vote. Well, BLM Matters, um, Co-founder Patrice Cullors has requested a meeting with President-elect Joe Biden to discuss the movement's agenda and lay out expectations for the incoming administration. Without the resounding support of black people, we would be saddled with a very different electoral outcome, Cullors wrote on a letter to Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris on Saturday. In short, black people won this election, quote. Well, Cullors plans to hold Biden's feet to the fire, saying that black people want to be heard and our agenda to be prioritized. Well, despite making history by choosing the first female and um, black vice president uh, to be elected, well, she's actually Indian and African-American or actually not even African-American. She's – black That's the right way to describe her. To be elected to office, it remains unclear if Biden can make good on campaign promises to create a police oversight board to combat police brutality, particularly against black and minority people within his first 100 days in the White House. Police reform has been at the forefront of American politics this election season, especially after the May 25th death of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis. In other developments, Democrat infighting over the defund the police movement heats up as AOC and the squad, as they're called, refuse to back down. And Elizabeth Warren credits Biden's win to the most progressive economic platform ever. So if you wonder whether or not that will be the case, apparently Elizabeth Warren assures us that it will be. Well, progressives say that Pelosi's ice cream freezer display was an unforced error during the election. Uh, they slammed the House Speaker in their postmodern of the 2020 election for showing off her expensive freezers full of premium Jenny's ice cream during an interview at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. When Democratic leaders make unforced errors like showing off two sub zero freezers full of ice cream on national television or cozy up with Wall Street executives and corporate lobbyists while Trump tells uh, voters we are the party of the swamp. It's not surprising that we lose, reads the memo, which was sent by um, the group, including Justice uh, Justice Democrats and the Sunshine Movement. The economy was voters' top concern in this election, the memo said. We need a new generation of leadership grounded in a multiracial working class experience and background, end quote. Well, the memo came after House Democrats performed well below expectations on election night, with some more moderate Democrats blaming their tough races on Progressives And most people have probably forgotten the ice cream incident, but apparently it is seething and melting, if you will, among some Democrats on the left and other developments. Rashida Tlaib has rejected claims that progressive tactics hurt the Democrats, saying embrace the base. And Nancy Pelosi is refusing to denounce socialism as she seeks another term as speaker. She would be unwise to do so if she intends to win. California Governor Gavin Newsom is easing penalties for former felons, including immigrants facing deportation. Biden wants a mask mandate in every state to fight the coronavirus, but some governors say they won't commit. And an Arizona judge has denied the Trump team's request to seal evidence in their vote counting suit. Bernie Sanders is confident that Biden will follow through on his progressive policy promises, again, more promises that... It will be progressive and far to the left. CNN insiders support the Jeffrey Tubin firing by New Yorker magazine, but they predict the network uh, will um, dig its heels and keep him. CNN's Chris Cuomo politicized Veterans Day shaming GOP enablers, in other words, voters during the Trump election challenge. And CMA Awards co-hosts Reba McIntyre and Darius Rucker, they focused on unity and not politics. Imagine that, a non-political Awards show. Kind of sorry I missed it. Sony PS5 sold out online as the pandemic chills real-world retailing, and Boeing has raised a 20-year forecast for China aircraft demand despite the pandemic. Biden's transition team is stacked with big tech players, and Amazon attracts food stamp users for online grocery orders during the pandemic. Apple supplier Foxcom Q3 profits uh, profit rather is near flat, but they beat estimates. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Just a reminder, coming up later this hour, we're going to talk with uh, Reverend Moore and Rabbi Cooper. They are co-authors of The Next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. Now, you might wonder, is there a Christian genocide in Africa? Well, the answer is yes, and the concern is not only what's happening there now, but what's likely to happen in the future as well. So we'll talk with him about that. We'll also talk with Zach Smith to try to get to the um, the bottom of the legal challenges that are currently pending and preventing the election from being certified. There are a number of them. There are some legitimate complaints. But how likely is it that even legitimate complaints are going to overturn the outcome of the election as it is understood at this moment? So we'll talk with Zach Smith about that a bit later in the program. Well, the New York Times compared Trump to murderous dictators in a rather nutty piece that miraculously escaped the editorial page. Uh, I'll share with you some of what it has to say. It is really quite far out there. And my guess is uh, if Joe Biden becomes the next president, we won't have to endure this kind of silliness from the New York Times or the press in general, at least until another Republican emerges as a uh, as a leader. Anyway, we'll get into that when we come back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation coming up in our next couple of segments. We'll be talking with the Reverend Johnny Moore and Rabbi Abraham Cooper. They're the co authors of The Next Jihad Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. That's coming up later this hour. Well, as I mentioned, there was a rather peculiar piece that miraculously escaped the editorial page of the New York Times, Um, and this is uh, some of what they wrote. When the Moscow-installed leader of Hungary watched the uh, Communist Party lose the election in 1945, he turned pale as a corpse, slumped into his chair without saying a word, according to a party official, who was present and later described what happened to Hungarian historians. Within a year, most of his opponents were dead in prison or terrified into silence, and he was running the country. Now, what they're doing here is comparing what's happening now in contesting certain outcomes in the election to what happened in Moscow. Ridiculous. Later, they write, in November of 2010, President Laurent um Gabago of Ivory Coast refused to accept his loss in an election, suppressing protests with live ammunition, killing dozens and dragging the country into a brief civil war in which over 3,000 people died. Like Mr. Trump, he freely used government machinery to challenge the election result, insisting he had not been defeated. The crisis stretched, over, stretched out over almost five months and brought the Ivory Coast to its knees economically. So they're suggesting that challenging the outcome of some of these races, which a candidate is entitled to do, and Democrats have done it as well as Republicans, is somehow going to plunge us into civil war in which Americans are going to be shot with live ammunition. Utterly irresponsible and ridiculous, but sadly not surprising from The New York Times. Seth Mandel, a conservative but not big uh, uh, on Mr. Trump, said, I rather blistered the paper for their absurdity, and it certainly was that. David Harson, you said, now as then, the media will pretend that the moral fabric of the nation must be. Uh, Mended after Republican rule. It's pretty transparent. When Democrats win the presidency, we are treated to solemn calls for national restoration and political harmony. And to the uh, expectation that for the good of the nation, the opposition will embrace decorum and pass legislation they oppose. When Republicans win elections, grown women put on knitted hats depicting their reproductive organs and stomp around Washington protesting all uh, to the hero's welcome. Meanwhile, Dan McLaughlin points out most of the uh, theories of election misconduct, even if proven, would not change the vote totals enough to overturn the outcome. That doesn't mean that Republicans and conservatives should roll over and do nothing. But uh, we should temper our expectations and not go chasing rumors and conspiracy theories without evidence. The goal should be to unearth genuine misconduct, expose it to the sunlight and prevent its repetition. Finally, from The Wall Street Journal. Doing a full audit by hand is more than Georgia law requires. It's unlikely to swing the state into Donald Trump's column since overcoming his 14,000 vote deficit would require the discovery of serious errors that have so far escaped detection. In any case, Mr. Biden would still have the required 270 electoral college votes unless he uh, his ever larger margins in Pennsylvania or other states were also somehow overturned. So, again, this kind of irresponsible reporting that we're seeing once again from The Wall Street Journal does not help. Uh, Joe Biden called for in his sort of election uh, acceptance speech called for unity. And this certainly does not reflect a movement in that direction. Well, a Georgia Democrat running for the Senate was arrested for obstructing a child abuse investigation. He was one of two pastors accused of interfering with the uh, investigation that took place in their facility in 2002. Will the media dare ask him about it? Well, Tom Cotton says the best way to stop socialism is to um, help Loeffler and uh, Purdue Senate win. Uh, And the other Democratic candidate, John Ossoff, said the Republicans uh, said of Republicans, you're going to uh, get beaten so bad you can never run or show your face again in public because we have had enough, absolutely enough of what you're uh, we're getting from Donald Trump and his fellow travelers right now. Well, that brought on this reply from Guy Benson. Nearly 2.5 million Georgia citizens have voted for President Trump in a contest that's so close it heads for a recount. John Ossoff likely hopes these Trump voters won't show their faces to vote against him. On the 5th of January, now the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman told Democrats to move to Georgia and vote in the runoff elections. That's a violation of state law, by the ways, by the way. Again, the New York Times. And Friedman isn't the only Democrat to suggest this very thing in order to win that Senate seat. Well, Biden's COVID-19 advisor says, "Let's lock the country down again." Imagine the dread from the small businesses that have managed to survive the insanity so far. But most likely would not in, uh, survive a second round. Well, Joe Biden is promising uh, to freeze deportations and allow immigrants from dangerous countries to come into the country. He says he will institute a 100 day freeze on deportations. Imagine what the border will look like for these first three months. Well, China rips the United States via the UN Human Rights Council, which is almost comical. Adding to the silliness, uh, noted the uh, day before the thread notes. Um, China is demanding the United States root out systematic racism and get those guns out of the hands of citizens, among other things. Again, almost laughable if uh, you didn't know what was happening with the Uyghurs, if you didn't know what was happening in Hong Kong and Christians in China as well. Well, Notre Dame orders COVID tests for all its students after a celebration that, well, may have contributed to a rise in the number of cases because the students stormed the field after their football team defeated top-ranked Clemson. It was hard to stay in your seat, I imagine. Well, Twitter repeatedly targets Trump tweets for refusal to accept the projected results of the election. They're just projected and not certified, so I suppose you're free to speculate, but not on Twitter, something they wouldn't dare have done to to Hillary the past four years as she failed to accept the outcome of the election for all four of those years, and that has led to a mass exodus from Twitter and Facebook to Parler. I guess that's another site. Rudy Giuliani claims 650,000 votes were counted unlawfully in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and Joe Biden's religious support may have been the difference. Uh, The softening of Trump's evangelical base may have proved critical. And a reminder, the doomsday predictions advanced by Democratic Party leaders that President Trump would sabotage the Postal Service failed to materialize. Hyperbole is uh, really should be unwelcome in politics on both sides. Georgia, where Biden's margin is under 15,000 votes, announces a full recount by hand. Unfortunately, National Review's Dan McLaughlin observes the average recount changes the totals by 430 votes, and the largest shift among any of the 31 recounts conducted over the past two decades was 0.1% of the vote. But it's also worth noting that Georgia is ripe for election fraud. But I guess the message is balance your expectations for what it's worth. An early poll of Georgia's twin Senate runoffs shows tight races. The poll showed Kelly Loeffler at 49 percent of the vote compared to Democrat Raphael Warnock's 48 percent showing within the margin of error. Two point six percentage point. About three percent were undecided. In the uh, other race, U.S. Senator David Perdue had a 50 to 46 percent lead over Democrat John Ossoff, echoing the results of the November election when the Republican fell just under the majority vote mark he needed to win outright. About 4 percent of uh, Georgians uh, were undecided. If Biden prevails, there's um, some of the things to consider. Joe Biden taps um, Ronald Klein, who ironically was general counsel to Al Gore's recount committee as White House chief of staff, according to the Washington Examiner. In 2014, Klain agreed that the elections are rigged. Apparently, he doesn't think that now. Joe Biden wants to scrap due process for college students who are accused of sexual assault. And Biden plans to reopen America to refugees after Trump slashed admissions. In 2016, President Barack Obama aimed to admit 110,000 refugees. President Trump lowered that cap of refugee admissions every year of his presidency. For fiscal year 2021, he set the cap at 15,000, the lowest on record. Biden promises to take a starkly different approach from his predecessor to set the annual Globe refugee admissions caps to 125,000, which, Course exceeds his former boss Barack Obama and seek to raise it over time. Well, the latest on COVID 19 states across the country are imposing restrictions as hospitalizations hit a new record of 65,000. New York is imposing a curfew on restaurants, bars, and gyms, as are other states, including Oregon. And melatonin may help treat the novel virus, according to a study. Taiwan has admitted U.S. troops exercises for the first time in 40 years, admitting the, uh, the fact to uh, the growing threat of China. The exceedingly rare acknowledgement of U.S. boots in Taiwan comes just days after American television networks call the presidential election for Democrat Joe Biden. And although President Donald Trump is yet to concede and his administration continues to dispute the outcome of the race, um, the current concern has uh, been set in uh, Taiwan among its residents who are overwhelmingly in favor of Trump of – rather. Um, uh, Trump re-election because of his hardline stance on China. That may change, as well as the billion-dollar arms deal struck by President Xi Wen's government. Meanwhile, China forces the ouster of Hong Kong's pro-democracy lawmakers. And around the world, Florida's governor is pushing the expansion of self-defense laws to defend against rioters. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a break, and when we return, we'll hear from Reverend Moore, and Rabbi Cooper their co-authors of the next Jihad, Stop Christian Genocide in Africa.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I've been looking forward to this conversation. The Next Jihad is the title of the book. Well, in an appeal for religious freedom and human rights, my guest and his co-author, both faith leaders and self-described freelance diplomats, Reverend Johnny Moore, my guest, and his co-author, Rabbi Abraham Cooper, they released their new book, The Next Jihad. They expose the everyday horrors that Christian believers face in Nigeria, and the authors spotlight the enduring atrocities of religious persecution and the cost of global inaction. The book is rooted in first-hand testimonials and their on-the-ground experiences. The next Jihad forewarns us about the dire but largely disregarded threat of terrorism seeking to eradicate Christians in Africa, either by forced conversion to Islam or by murder. The authors uh, contrasting religious backgrounds, more an evangelical Christian, and uh, Rabbi Cooper, an Orthodox Jew, make this multi-faith collaboration an especially powerful argument for safeguarding religious tolerance and our shared human um, rights. Reverend Johnny Moore is a noted speaker, author, and human rights activist. He served as the president of Congress of Christian Leaders and is the founder of Kairos Company, one of America's leading boutique communications consultancies. He also is best known for his extensive multi-faith work on the intersection of faith and foreign policy. He serves as a presidential appointee to the United States Commission for International Religious Freedom and sits on many boards. And if I went through the very long list, we wouldn't have time for our interview, so I will leave it at that, but I am just delighted to have you with us, Reverend Johnny Moore. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks, Georgene. Good to be with you.
1: Well, first of all, let me ask you about your collaboration. You are an evangelical Christian. You've uh, collaborated with an Orthodox rabbi, Abraham Cooper. How did the two of you come to this book and this subject?
2: Well, I I really refer to Rabbi Cooper as my mentor. You know, He's uh, someone who's influenced my life uh, in in a great way for a long period of time. Uh, but I met him uh, back in 2017, I believe, maybe late 2016, when the Simon Wiesenthal Center uh, honored uh, a, a project that I was involved in to help rescue Christians from uh, Iraq and Syria. And so I, I, I ended up uh, receiving their Medal of Valor. But aside from that, that single event, I, I found Rabbi Cooper to be uh, literally one of the uh, wisest people I've met on the planet, a human rights activist for 50 years. And we've begun to collaborate all over the world. And actually, Georgine, it was Rabbi Cooper, the Orthodox Jew, that asked me, uh, Johnny Moore, the evangelical Christian, when I was going to go to Nigeria, because what was because of all that was happening in Nigeria. So we decided we'd go together. Ah,
1: oh, wonderful! In the introduction, you ask the question, "What's going on in Africa?" and it's a apt question because most of us don't know. You write that Af- Africa is a continent that takes up much of our globe, but so little of our minds here in the West. It's an incomparably important place on our planet, yet too rarely captures the world's attention. Normally, it does so only during tragedy. There is a tragedy going on right now, a genocide, if you will, that most of us are unaware of.
2: Yeah, and it's been going on for a long time. Uh, back, back when ISIS was at its height in Iraq and Syria in, in 2015, more Christians were dying in northeast Nigeria than Christians or Yazidis that were dying in, in Iraq and Syria. So, so this is, it's not a new crisis, Mm -hmm. It's an ongoing crisis that seems to be escalating, and the numbers are growing, and the world is becoming increasingly indifferent. And, you know, I'm not sure why people won't pay attention to it, but one of the convictions that I have is that the the best way of sort of awakening the conscience of the world is to tell the stories of the victims. And so right before COVID-19 shut down the world, uh, Rabbi Cooper and I spent several days in, in Abuja meeting with dozens and dozens of victims, hearing Stories that I knew would be bad, but I got to tell you, Georgie, it was much, much worse than I even knew.
1: And It does beg the question, why aren't we hearing about these stories? Uh, the mainstream media's focuses on a lot of different things. We tend to think about terrorism in the Middle East. There's been a national election. We're in the middle of a pandemic. These are kind of current reasons one might uh, look to as to why we're not hearing about what's happening in Nigeria, for example. But how do you explain the, the ignorance, even of the, the Christian community in general, of what's happening there and the threat uh, not only to Nigerians and other uh, African nations, but the threat to Europe, the United States, and other parts of the world and and when you add on on top of it, you know when the media does report on it, they tend to report
2: on it uh, in a in a strange way where they they won 't talk about the religious violence they'll they 'll chop the violence off to climate change or to conflicts between herders and farmers, but they won 't mention you know the fact that this is uh, often religiously religiously motivated. And, and, you know, and by the way, it, it's important to all of us. I mean, Nigeria is the largest co- country, the most populated country in Africa. It has the 10th largest oil reserves in the world. It has the largest economy on the continent and the countries surrounding it all have their own sort of terrorist insurgencies. And so what's quietly happening on the great continent and its uh, perhaps most influential country is a catastrophe that 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 could not only uh, you know un, 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 you know destabilize that that nation it could destabilize that whole part of of the African continent which would make the Syrian crisis look look insignificant uh, compared to what could could happen there, but more importantly it's the individual lives you know like the uh, the seminarian Michael Nadi who earlier this year at eighteen years old was kidnapped in the middle of the night found dead on the side of the road, and uh, in the, this was a rare circumstance where they actually caught the perpetrator, and the perpetrator, when, when he was asked why he killed him, he said he killed him because Michael just kept sharing his faith with him, and he wouldn't stop, and it became annoying, and so he decided to, quote, send him to an early grave, and there are Thousands and thousands and thousands of Michael Nadi's. I mean, hundreds of of villages, all the churches destroyed, all the homes burned to the ground, all the animals stolen. Uh, Circumstances that uh, particularly alarmed uh, Rabbi Cooper, uh, whom whom I've written the next jihad with, because they they segmented out communities. They'd stopped cars on the side of the road and Muslims were freed and Christian men were killed on the spot and the young women were, were trafficked.
1: This is happening every day, every single day. Including today, right now, let's talk now about the perpetrators. Who are the perpetrators? What motivates them, and how are they uh, being confronted by anyone to, to prevent this from expanding or moving forward?
2: Yeah, there's the three groups. The, the first is Boko Haram. You know, that, that's the group that most people have have, have heard about. Uh, ironically enough, you know, back in uh, 2013, 2014. The Obama administration, for some strange reason, refused to designate Boko Haram a terrorist organization when they were beheading people, you know, in the in the name of their of, of, of their religious beliefs. Boko Haram has is has is been a, been with us for a long time and hasn't been dealt with for a long time. Then there's ISIS in West Africa, ISIS attempting to reestablish itself in those countries. And then finally, and perhaps most alarmingly, there's a segment of Africa's largest tribe. The, the tribe is called the Fulani. There are mm-hmm. 17 million of them alone in Nigeria. And most Fulani are good, wonderful people. But there's a there's a small group of them, uh, but a small group and a very large group of people of people who are appropriating the tactics of Boko Haram and ISIS in West Africa in the center part of Nigeria. So so this terrorism used to be isolated to the northeast of the country in a relatively small area of a couple of states. But now in the whole center of the country, you have these militant uh, Fulani, a segment of these Fulani tribespeople. You know, who were yelling "Allahu Akbar" as they attacked villages in in the middle of the night, killing thousands and thousands and thousands of people, displacing tens of thousands more. And ironically enough, uh, in my research, you know, we 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 discovered that um, on a number of occasions, you know, forensic evidence has been left behind, like rudimentary cell phones from the Falani militants. And on one of the cell phones uh, was the phone number of a number of of senior people in the police forces and armed services in in the country. And so, you know, at a minimum, this great ally of the United States, an important country that we love very much, has has severe corruption, uh, which is inhibiting uh, the the prosecution of these perpetrators of of genocide, of ethnic cleansing. I mean, that's what they're in. That's the ring. They want to take out every Christian in the country and every Muslim that stands in their way.
1: We're talking with Reverend Johnny Moore, who, along with Rabbi Abraham Cooper, co-authored The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. And if you have been unaware of what's happening there, this is an excellent book to become aware and the stakes, not only for those who are directly being targeted, but for the rest of the world as well. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. If
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Reverend Moore, who, along with Rabbi Cooper, co authored the next Jihad Stop Christian Genocide in Africa. Now, our, our temptation is to look at the broad implications of what's happening in Nigeria and elsewhere uh, and to consider how it might somehow be exported uh, outward. But I appreciate that you focus our attention on what's happening to brothers and sisters in Christ on the ground right now, the price they are paying for faithfully following their, their faith. And I want to talk about the implications as well, but I think it's important that we look at who's being impacted uh, and targeted by these perpetrators and what they hope ultimately to accomplish.
2: And and to do so, I, I, the most important and powerful thing is to, is to tell their stories. And yes, there are a few of them that really touch me. I think there's, one girl, uh, pr- probably many people listening to us have heard this name before. That her, her name is Leah Sherabu. So, so Leah was uh, 14 years old, one of 110 young girls that were kidnapped by, by Boko Haram terrorists in in Nigeria two and a half years ago. When when Boko Haram kidnapped them, it, it caused a massive massive political problem in the country. You know, for the for the ruling government, they negotiated the release of the 110 girls. Uh, it's just that all the parents were waiting for the girls to be released in the buses. Uh, And then one parent, Leah's mom, Rebecca, as she tells the story was looking around and she couldn't find her daughter. And all the other girls were there, but her daughter wasn't there. And she's getting more and more desperate. And she sees one of Leah's friends. So she runs up to Leah's friend. She says, where's Leah? Where's Leah? Where's Leah? And then Leah's friend told her that all of the other girls were freed, but the terrorists wouldn't free Leah because Leah was the only Christian in the group and Leah refused to convert to Islam and she said you can take my life but I will not change my religion and this little 14 year old girl with more faith than most pastors I know stared down these terrorists and remains in captivity today just because she would refuse to convert you know out of out of Christianity into into Islam and there's just story after story after story like that, uh, you know, early earlier this year, you know, a, a famous pastor in the country, in the northeast of the country, uh, was was beheaded on a live video because he would to refuse to convert, and he leaves behind a widow and nine children, and yet they they hold their testimony as the most important thing in 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 their lives, and so I think a lot of people listening to us think. That all of this has sort of gone the way of history, those terrible years of ISIS in Iraq and Syria. this is all gone, but it isn't gone it 's moved to a different part of the world and 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 I 'm just telling you if something isn't done you know, it, it, it's, it's going to affect us all but 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 as a believing Christian, you know I, I have to also say that the strongest some of the strongest faith i've seen in the world you know isn 't in our gigantic churches in the United States of America or in Western Europe. It, it's, it's in the, the testimony of these, these everyday Christians in this persecuted part of Africa's most populated country.
1: Who take their faith seriously and are empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand against those who would seek to destroy their, their lives. Um, you write about deadly midnight raids, arson, kidnappings, rapes, forced conversions, overt slaughter, These are horrific stories that one might expect to find in the pages of the Old Testament. And yet, in our day, this is what's occurring right now. Uh, Failure to respond to this in some constructive way uh, certainly has implication for those who are suffering. Um, But talk a bit about the the broader implications. If this is permitted to go on unchecked, if the world continues to look away, um, what can we expect as a result? We
2: we can expect a, a humanitarian catastrophe. Unlike anything that we've seen, and and that is saying something. Having having just come through the first decade of the Syrian conflict, and we watched how that upheaval affected almost the entire world, you know, and and especially the neighboring countries countries in Europe. I mean, and, and here's the thing: like, I, I'm not I'm not here to you know to Speak badly about Nigeria. I love Nigeria. I mean, these are amazing people. It's an amazing country, some of the most incredible people in the world. It's an ally of the United States, a critical ally, and it needs to stay that way. But the government in Nigeria, for whatever reason, is choosing not to take the action necessary and they need to be called out on it. And that's one of the reasons why we went. It's one of the reasons why we've written written the book. And it's not just on the United States to, to do something, it's also on Europe. You know, the United Kingdom gives a million dollars a day, a million pounds a day rather, you know, to, to the Nigerians. It's time for all of the aid money given by the United States and the Europeans to be evaluated. It's time for the United States and the Europeans to send a clear message that if the Nigerian government doesn't fulfill its fundamental responsibility of protecting the innocent, then, you know, it, 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 it's going to face consequences for that when it comes to our, our relationship. You know, and Georgine, all of this is in a democracy. You know, Nigeria is a democracy. This isn't a totalitarian dictatorship. So it's just got to end, and it's got to end right now. And also, you know, it's time for us to pray for these people. I mean, really, really intensely pray for these people, educate ourselves on the issues, give to the organizations that are helping those in need, call our our politicians, Democrat or Republican, and make sure that this is a priority uh, for, for them. Now is the time to act. We will be forced to act if we don't get our act together.
1: Yeah, we're talking about the book "The Next Jihad: Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa." That's perhaps a great place to start to learn about what the situation is and how those who are uh, fellow followers of Jesus, um, how they are suffering. You write about the moral imperative to act, and I think we can all feel that that need to act. What can we uh, What can we do? What can be done to help uh, as an average follower of Christ, as an average citizen? Um, first of all, we need to be convinced that it's imperative to act. But then what can we do to help that's going to make a difference?
2: Well, you know, this, this is what united uh, the rabbi and I. I mean, we're, you know, he's yes. an Orthodox Jew. I'm, a, I'm an evangelical Christian, but we both believe in action. You know, it, compassion requires action. You have to do something about it. You know, and, and in the back of the book, we list a bunch of things that, 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 that can be done. But let me just give, you know, a, a couple of real simple ones. Pray like you hope these people – like you hope someone would pray for you. Educate yourself so you know what's going on, including the stories of the victims. You can tell those, those stories. Send an email to your political leader's office today. Just go on the website, find a local leader, and say, what are you doing about the, the crisis in Nigeria you know, and and then and then finally, you know, help organizations that are helping helping those in need. You know, the thing about Nigeria is it has a huge Christian population. Every denomination is in Nigeria. The largest assemblies of God communities outside of the United States are in are in Nigeria. Like your church has some connection to the country. Like it's time to help those churches in Nigeria cope with the crises that they're they're facing. Now's now's the time to do it. There are lots of other things that can be done, but those are a, a few quick ones you might remember.
1: Yes, and you'll find them in the book. Let me ask you how the Christian community is faring. Obviously, under this kind of ongoing relentless pressure and danger, it takes its toll. How is the church in general holding up under this kind of challenge? I mean, this is a miracle, right? I,
2: I, I've spent my entire adult life helping persecuted Christians around the world, and I always find, like, I'm the one that's actually helped, you know. In, in the end, I mean, it keeps my faith alive. And I got to tell you, you know, the Nigerian church is strong. You know, I, I'm, I met a a pastor who is on his second burned down church, and uh, he, he he reminded me of a modern day Apostle Paul. Like, he's not going anywhere. They could take they could take his church. They could take any. Little bit of money he has. They could take his food. They could burn down the building. He's just gonna stay caring for those, for those people. So it's a, it's a church that's alive.
1: Well, that's so encouraging. We have a great deal to learn from them, but we also have a great deal we can do to help support them, first by recognizing that moral imperative to act, and then to act constructively. Again, the book is titled The Next Jihad, Stop the Christian Genocide in Africa. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. And let me encourage you to read the book to learn more about what's happening in this this country in Africa. And I think I appreciate, too, that you put it in context that the ripple effect, if left unchallenged, of what's happening there uh, into Europe and other countries, including our own, is uh, certainly sobering as well. The next jihad. Um, Reverend Johnny Moore, thank you so much for your collaboration with Rabbi Cooper and for taking the time to talk with us about this important book today. Thanks for shining a light on it. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour, and when we return, we'll talk with Zach Smith. He's a legal fellow in the Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll try to get some understanding, gain some understanding of the lawsuits that are currently pending that uh, has failed to resolve our election. Uh, is it likely or possible that the the outcome could be overturned? Uh, from what we've been told uh, is the uh, the current outcome, or just we'll put it all into perspective you're listening to the georgine Rice show
0: you're listening to the georgine Rice show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine kpdq
1: you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm trying to follow the legal challenges to the the election, the presidential election, and it's a bit difficult to do. Well, my next guest, Zach Smith, along with Hans von Spakovsky, wrote a column on the subject, and we're going to get him to kind of walk us through some of what's happening. He writes that we all knew Election Day 2020 wouldn't be normal, and yet it still seems remarkable that we don't yet know who the next president of the United States uh, will be on January 20th, and we may not know for some time, President uh, Trump um, or the newly elected, uh, inaugurated President Joe Biden. Well, even if news organizations declare the winner in the close presidential race, that's not the official result. States have until the, de- the 8th of December to settle any election disputes and certify their results before the meeting of state electors in every state on December 14th when they cast their electoral college votes for president. Well, that's that's a lot to, to take in, but where we stand now is the question I think many of us are wondering in terms of the challenges. Well, Zach Smith is a legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you so so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, we're trying to follow and sort through all of this, um, and there are some key legal fights that maybe you can help us better understand. Let's begin with Pennsylvania. There seem to be a a lot of questions, different questions relating to the outcome of their election and how decisions were made and handled. Can you tell us what the status is uh, the legal fight is in Pennsylvania at this point?
3: Sure. Uh, In Pennsylvania, several lawsuits have been filed relating to election process, election procedures that have been used. And one of the cases out of Pennsylvania has the best chance of being reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that case deals with the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to order state officials to accept and count absentee ballots, even if they arrive after Election Day. And so that uh, decision you know, is is being appealed. It's working its way through the uh, court system right now. And if the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take up uh, one of these election related cases, I think that one certainly uh, has the best chance of, of being taken up.
1: Now, we know that courts are are reluctant to uh, weigh in on elections. Is it likely that they will take this up or or do they have the option of simply declining to take it up? They
3: could simply decline to take it up. And in fact, before the election, uh, several individuals, uh, party officials, asked the U.S. Supreme Court two times to review this action, to take up this case, and they declined both times. And so now that we're after the election, when these ballots are hotly disputed, uh, you know, the Supreme Court finds itself in the unenviable position of, again, for a third time, uh, being asked to take up and review this case. Uh, And so, you know, it's certainly uh, not a good position for the court to be in, uh, but it's certainly a worthwhile issue for them to look at and to review.
1: One of the complaints um, that the Trump campaign has raised in uh, Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania and other places is uh, them being uh, denied the opportunity to actually witness the ballots being counted. Uh, how serious an issue is that? And even if um, it's uh, it's determined that, yes, that was the case, what can be done about it since the ballots have been counted?
3: Well, it's a very serious issue. Everybody who's involved in an election, whether you're Republican or Democrat, should have a right and an opportunity to meaningfully review and participate. Uh, in the ballot counting process in order to ensure there's no mischief or shenanigans taking place. And so, unfortunately, what we were seeing in Pennsylvania, what we were seeing in Michigan, places like Detroit, was that campaign officials were being denied access, or if they were being given access to the ballot counting facilities, they were placed so far away that they couldn't really tell or see what was going on. Uh, So I absolutely agree that it's very important that um, both Democrats and Republicans are able to be there to review the counting process, to ensure the integrity of the process. Uh, Unfortunately, once the ballots are counted, uh, you know, if access was denied, it's tough for courts to come up with a remedy. And in Mm -hmm. fact, that's what we saw a judge in Michigan say, you know, by the time the lawsuit got to her. The ballots had been counted. So there was really nothing she could do. But this is certainly an issue, something we all need to pay close attention to uh, as we begin preparing, you know, even now for the 2022 and 2024 elections.
1: You mentioned uh, Michigan. The president's campaign lost legal challenges in both Georgia and Michigan. But we've learned recently that Georgia is going to hand recount all of their presidential ballots. Can you give us a bit of that backstory and what that might mean?
3: Yeah, that's exactly. uh, Of course. And so in Georgia, what happened basically is there's an allegation that some late arriving absentee ballots were being commingled with timely arrived ballots. The Trump campaign filed a lawsuit. Unfortunately, the judge said there wasn't enough evidence presented for him to really take any action. And so he dismissed the lawsuit. Um, You know, unfortunately, that, that decision highlights two of the problems Uh, that the Trump campaign is facing really in all of their lawsuits. The first is that election fraud is often difficult uh, to detect. Mm -hmm. And the second one is if it is detected, it's even harder to prove in a court of law. And so while all of these legal challenges, they're very important, very necessary to ensure the integrity of our election process. You know, unfortunately, President Trump, his campaign, uh, they are facing an uphill battle with a lot of these losses right now
1: uh talk a bit about nevada and arizona what's what's happening there sure so in Arizona, you know, there was the allegation, uh, some folks
3: call it Sharpie Gate, where voters were mm-hmm. given Sharpies to fill out their ballot to vote with. And there was an allegation that that wasn't the proper kind of ink to use, uh, that the ballot scanning machines couldn't read those ballots if they were marked with a Sharpie. You know, Arizona's Attorney General, Mark Bronovich, I think he deserves a lot of credit. He was quick to go in, quick to investigate. And at least right now, uh, it looks like uh, there's not much to those Sharpie gate claims that those ballots, if they were in fact filled out with Sharpies, uh, were able uh, to be read by the ballot scanning machines and to be counted. Now, I think the more interesting case is the one going forward in Nevada right now. Uh, you know, Unfortunately, Nevada's voter rolls are notoriously out of date, uh, notorious for having dead or ineligible voters on them. And what we saw this year is that when you combine those bad voter rolls with the fact that Nevada moved primarily to a vote by mail system for the first time really in its history, uh, there's allegations now that potentially thousands of ineligible voters uh, cast ballots in this past election cycle. And so that's an allegation the Trump campaign has brought forward in a lawsuit. And I certainly think uh, that will be an interesting one uh, to watch as it works its way through the court systems.
1: At the end of the column that you co-wrote, you you make the point that there are two things to keep in mind. One of of the points is that gathering the evidence is extremely difficult and expensive. And the second is that courts are usually very reluctant to overturn election results, even with substantial evidence of possible problems. How likely is the Trump campaign effort uh, to draw attention to what they are claiming is fraud or misconduct uh, going to have an impact on the, the final outcome of this election?
3: well it's 2020 georgine so i'm hesitant to make uh, any predictions <laughs> about what will happen uh, but but again unfortunately you know president trump uh, his campaign they really do face uphill battles in a lot of these lawsuits again you know it's certainly worthwhile uh, because even one fraudulently cast ballot is one too many and so we need to find out what's happening if any fraud occurred and how we can prevent it moving forward. Uh, but unless there's uh, evidence if, unless the president and his campaign are able to produce evidence of systemic fraud, very widespread fraud, unfortunately, courts are historically very hesitant to intervene and, and overturn election results, and we're probably looking at a similar situation uh, here as
1: well. Well. We'll continue to wait patiently to see what the outcome ultimately will be. Zach Smith, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us today. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. Take care. Zach Smith is legal fellow in the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing to work our way through some of the news stories of the last couple of days. I mentioned that Florida's governor is pushing the expansion of self-defense laws to defend against rioters. Well, the proposal would justify the use of force against individuals committing arson or looting that results in the interruption or impairment of a business operation. Governor DeSantis' proposal would also create additional criminal penalties for those engaged in violent or disorderly assemblies, make it a felony to stop traffic while protesting and provide legal immunity to drivers who have unintentionally hurt or killed protesters. Well, a state senator has moved to make Oklahoma a Second Amendment sanctuary state, and there will be no charges filed against a black Indianapolis police officer who fatally shot another black man. And the U.S. divorce rate, uh, rates rather have hit a 50-year low. But before you celebrate, Marriage rates are also the lowest ever. Similar to abortion statistics, good news, except birth rates are also low. We need uh, high marriage rates, low divorce rates, high birth rates, low abortion rates. Well, the NFA, uh, NFL has fumbled again, announcing it wants uh, teams to make hiring decisions based on race. And author Ibrahim Kendi, uh, Kendi, rather says the term legal votes is racist. I'm losing track, and it's hard to keep up with what's considered racist now. I think math is on that list as well. Two plus two, you racist, if you answered four. On the lighter side, Chick-fil-A has been named America's favorite fast food for the sixth year in a row. And a 92-year-old woman with dementia performed one of Beethoven's greatest works. It was really quite something to see. She was seated in her wheelchair at the time. 1927, on this day in history, Joseph Stalin becomes the undisputed ruler of the Soviet Union as Leon Trotsky is expelled from the Communist Party. 1987, the American Medical Association issues a policy statement saying it was unethical for a doctor to refuse to treat someone solely because that person has AIDS or is HIV positive. 1998, Chicago Mayor Richard Daley files a $433 million lawsuit against the firearms industry, declaring that it has created a public nuisance by flooding the streets with weapons deliberately marketed to criminals. A judge would uh, dismiss the lawsuit in 2000. An appeals court would rule in 2002 that the city of Chicago could proceed, but the Illinois Supreme Court would dismiss the lawsuit in 2004. And today marks the 50th anniversary of that infamous um, dynamiting of the whale on the Oregon coast. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow on our fun Friday. So look forward to that. Well, Security, who appears, um, or I should say Senator James Langford on Wednesday, said it's important for people who voted for President Trump to have all of their questions answered regarding unfounded claims of voter fraud, Though he issued assurance that there would be a peaceful transition of power and vowed to intervene if the administration doesn't begin cooperating with the transition. Again, that's Senator uh, James Langford, a Republican from Oklahoma. It's important for the 71 million plus people that voted for President Trump that at the end of it, they know all of their questions were answered and that there is a president that was actually duly elected. President Trump has uh, repeatedly vowed to contest election results in a number of battleground states. And of course, we... Uh, Are going to hear more about that with Zach Smith later in today's program. But the junior senator from Oklahoma told a local station, despite the recount, it's unlikely that the projected results will be overturned. He also told the radio station that uh, he would intervene if the Trump administration has not given Biden access to presidential daily intelligence briefings by the end of the week. There's no less, uh, no loss from him getting the briefings, and to be able to do that, Blankford said, who was on the Senate Oversight Committee, uh, he would need to or someone would need to step in. If no progress has been made by Friday toward the president-elect receiving the highly classified intelligence briefings on national security issues, he says he plans to step in and say this needs to occur so that regardless of the outcome of the election, whichever way that uh, it goes, people can be ready for the actual task. I thought it rather interesting David Harsiney um, authored a a column that simply pointed out that Joe Biden is the luckiest politician in American history. And if you look back over his political career, I think I might have to agree. He writes that Joe Biden has faced many tragedies in his personal life, but if he wins the presidency – He will have been the luckiest politician in American history. 1972, Biden only wins his first Senate race in Delaware after Richard Nixon misguidedly convinces incumbent J. Caleb Boggs, who had announced he would be retiring, to run again. It's also the first Senate election in which 18-year-olds could vote. Biden's argument, Boggs, at the age of 63, 14 years younger than Biden is today, was over the hill. The timing worked out well for the then-unknown candidate, who thereafter basically runs for a House-sized congressional seat uh, every six years until 2009. 1970s, Biden, by his own admission, spends the decade sucking up to segregationists such as James Eastland, Herman Talmadge, and others to gain undeserved committee seats, often fighting for their... um, Uh, causes in return. Biden seeks to praise uh, the praise of George Wallace before his uh, conversion, lectures a civil rights activist about how Wallace was sometimes right, and claims the southern system was good for black people. He would later eulogize his good friend Strom Thurmond. Uh, This uh, kind of sordid past would likely have ruined the careers of most politicians in the 2000s. Yet here uh, we are in 2020 and Biden has become the candidate of the great racial reckoning. 1988, Biden runs one of the most disastrous major presidential campaigns in American history. He concocts fabricated histories of his upbringing and education and plagiarizes speeches from John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey. As if that weren't enough, Biden lifts an entire speech nearly verbatim from British labor politician Neil Kinnock using phrases, gestures and lyrical Welsh syntax intact. Uh, That kind of all-encompassing deceitfulness would have sunk the the political careers of lesser men. 1987 to 1994, Biden turns what had been civil Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings into smear fests against conservative nominees. In 1986, the year before Biden became chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Antonin Scalia had been approved 98 to 0 by the Senate. After that comes Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas hearings, where Biden's ignorance and incompetence during the show trials give America a glimpse of a man who had been lifted far above his abilities. 1994, while in the Senate, Biden supports virtually every expansion of the drug war and mass incarceration, co-authoring the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act or the Biden Crime Law. As the presidential candidate was calling it until a few years ago, Biden gives passionate speeches on the Senate floor promising to lock the well, I won't use the word he does, or at least the initials lock them up and bragging uh, that his bill did everything but hang people for for jaywalking. His work during these years is at the root of numerous grievances of the Black Lives Matter movement. 2002, Biden isn't merely a face in the crowd of votes for the Iraq war. In fact, he chairs the Senate uh, Committee on Foreign Relations, a perch from which he directs the debate and argues in favor of the 2002 war authority. Though he doesn't uh, doesn't know it at the time, his work in making the Iraq war possible saves his political future by launching the career of a young anti-war senator named Barack Obama. 2008, the day uh, Biden kicks off his second campaign for the presidency, he notes that Obama is the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy, end quote. Well, this kind of racist comment, followed by dozens of others, probably would have killed the prospects of higher office for most politicians, especially one with the history of Biden. Yet the proud son of Scranton campaigns into the Iowa caucuses coming in fifth place and winning less Uh, by less than one percent of the vote 2008 after a gaff filled undistinguished senatorial career and two catastrophic presidential campaigns under his belt biden is saved from the political scrap heap by his one-time rival barack obama apprehensive about being portrayed as an irredeemable leftist scours washington for the most non-threatening yes man that he could find to fill the veep role resurrecting biden's career 2016. Hillary Clinton runs for president. 2020, Biden abandons any vestiges of moderation to align himself with a modern progressive left. The only possible way that voters could see him as a moderate now would be in uh, irascible, uh, septuagenarian – well, I won't even – use that whole um, description, but a Trotskyite somehow became his biggest rival for the nomination. And again, the political um, leaders smiled on him in the form of a Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. 2020, Biden runs not only with the full and open support of a political media that suppresses inconvenient stories about his possible corruption, but also was allowed to run from his living room against Donald Trump in the middle of a a once-in-a-century pandemic. If there's anything we can learn from this phenomenal run of good luck, for, for Joe Biden, is that there is no meritocracy in politics. So never give up on that unearned confidence, no matter how often history proves you wrong. Never let your risable knowledge of the world or decades or blunders stop you from chasing that dream. Just keep cynically repositioning yourself. Keep saying things emphatically. It doesn't matter what. And with a lot of luck, you too might become president someday. Now, you have to have a media that is willing to literally overlook and refuse to cover anything that's unflattering, but you add that into the equation, and I think he's probably right. Uh, Joe Biden is the luckiest politician in American history. Again, David Harsoni. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are lots of questions and speculation about who will uh, Joe Biden select to be cabinet members, and there's some. Informed uh, uh, speculation about it. Democratic Senator Doug uh, Jones of Alabama, who was defeated by a Republican challenger Tommy, uh, Tommy Tuberville in last week's election, will be out of work come January. And some are suggesting that he may, in fact, uh, be considered for the to be the next Attorney General of the United States. Senator Amy Klobuchar is also considered uh, a runner in that. Uh, in that uh, role. She's from Minnesota, a Biden rival during the battle for Democratic presidential nomina- uh, nomination. She's also mentioned as a potential candidate for attorney general. Uh, Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez may also be uh, in the running. Um, Perez served as assistant attorney general for civil rights in President Obama's administration before Obama named him as labor secretary. And California Attorney General Xavier Bacara is another possible candidate as Sally Yates, a former deputy attorney general in the Obama administration. She gained some national attention when President Trump fired her during an early days of his um, White House tenure for refusing to defend his executive order, barring people from a handful of Muslim countries from entering the U.S. Stacey Abrams' name is also mentioned. Abrams, who uh, came close to becoming the first black female elected as governor, became a leading voting rights advocate after narrowly losing in 2018 in the gubernatorial election in Georgia. She was also considered as Biden's running mate. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, a Biden rival during the Democratic primary, serving as the Senate Judiciary Committee or on the committee, and was a leading sponsor of the sweeping criminal justice measures passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. He would bring diversity to the Justice Department. So would Preet Bahara, He's a former chief federal prosecutor in Manhattan's Southern District. For Treasury, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts battled Biden during the Democratic nomination race. But the progressive champion and former Harvard law professor has a history of fighting for the working class and taking aim at the big banks and corporations. But a GOP-controlled Senate or even a 50-50 chamber could make Warren's nomination a non-starter. Uh, To maintain the balance of power. Former Federal Reserve Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, who's the chief executive of Teachers Insurance and Annuity Association of America and investor um, Melody Hobson would bring diversity to Treasury, but progressives would decry their ties to the corporate world. Federal Reserve Governor Lyle Brainart, uh, maybe the consensus candidate. He worked at the Treasury Department during the Obama administration. For State Department, Susan Rice's name is once again being uh, bandied about. She served as National Security Advisor and U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations under Obama. She's considered a strong uh, contender to serve as America's top diplomat. She was considered earlier this year as Biden's running mate as well. Other names that have come up for Secretary of State, William Burns, the veteran foreign service officer who served as deputy secretary of state in the Obama administration and Anthony Blinken, Obama's deputy secretary of state and deputy national security advisor who served as a top Biden campaign advisor. Democratic senators Chris Coons of Delaware and Chris Murphy of Connecticut are also being mentioned. For defense, Michelle Flourno, uh, Flournoy rather, a former undersecretary of defense in the Obama administration, appears to be leading as the contender there. She's co-founder of the centrist think tank For new American security. Also, uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth. uh, She's out of Illinois. She's also mentioned as a possible candidate for defense secretary. The Iraq War veteran who earned a Purple Heart after she was injured when her helicopter was hit by enemy fire was considered to be on Biden's short list for a running mate. Uh, Senator Jack Reed of Rhode Island, a West Point graduate who served in the Army's 82nd Airborne Division, is also mentioned. Uh, Reed was also uh, a professor at U.S. Military Academy, top Democrat on the Senate Armed Services Committee. So these are some of the names that are being bandied about. Um, And uh, again, if Joe Biden becomes something other than president-elect with an asterisk by his name, those are names uh, uh, to, to follow. Well, Joe Biden is calling for unity following the 2020 presidential election, but it's pretty clear that many of the former vice president supporters view post-election unity as something to create by force and intimidation. Well, that sort of unity is enforced by ruthless institutional pressure and cancel culture. It's a tactic that the left already uses through its power in America's institutions, but it's looking to redouble its effort indeed to capture the presidency and the executive branch as well. Well, numerous liberals and left-wingers have demanded punishment of anyone uh, who has worked for, allied with, or generally supported President Donald Trump from the simple voter to those who served in his administration. Some want to destroy the Republican Party altogether. Again, the opponent is evil rather than just uh, someone with whom we disagree. You can't heal or reform the GOP, who are now an extremist party. That's a quote from the contributing writer to the New York Times uh, on Twitter. They have to be broken, burned down, and rebuilt. When Biden is in power, treat them like an active threat to democracy they are. If those who committed crimes aren't punished, then they will be more emboldened. Clearly, a two-party system is just too much for some to bear. Now, these are responses to... Um, The next administration and what should be done. It was no surprise to see openly socialist representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez sound exactly like other socialists in history when they amassed power. In other words, the nice sounding democratic part of socialism gets dropped for the purer variety. Well, that's true. uh, The true face of socialism at its core. It's not just about higher taxes, redistribution of wealth and generous welfare state. To fulfill its true aims, it requires an enforced equality that defies human nature and disagreement or challenge. No wonder so many Venezuelan immigrants, many of whom escaped the uh, brutal socialist regime of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, voted for Donald Trump. That came as a surprise to some, but not those who understood what they had endured. It isn't just fringe radicals calling for purges. It's moderates as well and the mainstream liberals, too. Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin, who used to call herself a conservative, has demanded a list of all those who think election fraud may have had a significant impact on the presidential Election, one wonders if uh, if it ever crossed Reuben's mind what it uh, would mean if we apply that standard consistently for those in the media who pursued the debunked Russian collusion accusation from 2016 uh, for the past four years. In that case, Reuben, who very much uh, be on that list, and perhaps more disturbing of uh, all in this whole equation, uh, is the fact that um, so many others would be as well. Uh, various Democratic staffers and Twitter. Uh, blue check marks uh, touted this project, the Trump Accountability Project website, which since has been privatized but may be found in archives. Explains that the Trump administration was so monstrous that any of those associated with it must be prevented from profiting from their experience. An ambiguous but ominous phrase in context. So, who made the Trump Accountability Project list? Well, I won't. I don't have time to go into all of them, but among them, um, it says campaign staff, administration. Appointees, donors, law firms, endorsers and denouncers. The administration tab contained names of senior advisors in the White House all the way down to chief calligrapher under denouncers. The project listed Miles Taylor, the low level bureaucrat and anonymous source published and promoted by the New York Times as the senior administration official. Even those who turned on Trump are to be deemed complicit, regardless of how the president uh, contest turns out. This sort of rhetoric and action literally days after Election Day demonstrates how important it is uh, to not give um, one side every level uh, lever rather of power. Now, the messages they're sending Americans uh, who don't agree with them is join us or else. It shouldn't be a surprise to see such a movement appear uh, um, Uh, personing political enemies is entirely in line with the ideology of a militant Uh, Socialist left that increasingly is becoming mainstream and normalized. And liberal institutions, one after another, are bucking and relenting to the demands of uh, this same group for conformity and enforced solidarity. Well, predictably, the mob no longer is just interested in the status of long dead figures of America's past. They're coming for you, and a generous slice of the American elite apparently is happy to relent. And give them their way. Now, we talked earlier this year about the uh, French Revolution and how those who stood in solidarity, not necessarily in broad agreement, thought that that would lend them some modicum of protection. It was only found that uh, those who were not all in, if you will, who were not fully woke, uh, found themselves ultimately on the guillotine. And my guess is that same kind of creeping ideology will be the case here Uh, as well. But while Joe Biden suggests that there ought to be unity, there are those in his party who suggest uh, nothing of the kind, that the Republicans should be eliminated from the public square altogether. And those who supported the president in any way, whether by ideological agreement or by virtue of taking on a job to serve the American people, they too should be punished and uh, not be permitted to flourish. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up in just a moment.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Hey, we're back, final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I have to tell you many of us are getting rather exhausted with the restrictions that we've had to live under for many, many months now, but more governors are now imposing coronavirus restrictions because the infection is spreading at a rate not seen since May. The number of reported COVID-19 cases Exceeded 144,000 on Wednesday. That's according to the COVID Tracking Project. It's a new record nationwide. The number of people hospitalized with the virus rose to an all-time high of more than 65,000 and 1,421 dead were recorded. Well, the average proportion of COVID-19 tests coming back positive across the U.S. has reached 8.5 percent. That's the highest rate since early May, indicating growing outbreaks. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he announced a series of new restrictions, as did Governor Brown here in the Pacific Northwest, on restaurants, bars and gyms in response to these increasing coronavirus positivity tests. Uh, Starting Friday night in New York, any establishment with a New York state liquor license, including bars and restaurants, they have to close by 10. I think that's the same case here in uh, in Oregon. Restaurants can do food only curbside pickup after Uh, gyms must also uh, close by 10. Cuomo added that private residential gatherings will be capped at 10 o'clock, citing house parties as super spreader events. And it's rather interesting to me how. Super spreader events are sort of picked and chosen. Some are considered, you know, just celebrations. Other are, others are considered super spreader events. So it's not always reliable how they're labeled. But anyway, the positivity rate for coronavirus tests in New York has ridden, risen rather to 2.52 percent in the last week. Um, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb, he announced two restrictions on specific counties reporting the steepest case increases there and, of course, in several counties here in Oregon. That's also the case in Maryland. The governor there tightened restrictions on restaurants that have to now scale back from 75 percent capacity to 50 percent and other restrictions. In Washington, D.C., they reported 206 new COVID-19 cases on Tuesday. That's double the number of previously recorded cases in the nation's capital in recent days. Now, to date, the U.S. has confirmed more than 10.3 million cases More than 241,000 deaths due to COVID-19. In other parts of the world, they're also struggling. Russia's coronavirus vaccine is 92% effective, according to a Russian direct investment fund, the nation's sovereign wealth fund. Uh, The vaccine, dubbed Sputnik V, has generated controversy because the Russian Ministry of Health approved its use in August, despite no phase three trials being completed. Uh, The European Commission has reached an agreement with Pfizer and Biotech for up to 300 million doses of their coronavirus vaccine as soon as it's widely available. Under that deal, 27 countries in the European Union could purchase 200 million doses with an option to buy 100 million more. That vaccine uh, vaccine won't be available until the European Medicines Agency deems it safe and effective. And of course, the the race to come up with an effective vaccine continues. I won't go into all of the uh, cases beyond Pfizer, but we have apparently entered into a season in which we are Uh, spreading the virus uh, more broadly, and restrictions are um, being restored. Not quite clear what Thanksgiving will look like or even Christmas at this point. Well, in other unrelated news, it's not enough that kids are learning about social justice issues in school or via TikTok. Increasingly, brands have jumped on the wake train Uh, to virtue signal to kids what they should think about controversial ideas, normalizing them for the sake of advancing a collective progressive ideology that values identity politics over individualism. Now, if that's what you and your household embrace, then... More power to you, but for those who disagree, this is a challenge. Recently, Oreo posted as one example a tweet that had nothing to do with the classic cookies. Kids have been devouring with milk for an after-school snack since the early 1900s. The Nabisco brand says a loving world starts with respecting others. That's that's fine. I think we all agree with that. But it was followed by a Q&A on why people should use preferred pronouns to show respect, tolerance and love. Now, the company says its Instagram page on the topic is even more woke and explains the concept in more detail. The campaign for children to support transgender ideology by using accurate pronouns is subtle, accurate, at least defined by what I choose to be referred to. Um, uh, is subtle but clear, and no amount of cute rainbow-style cookie graphics hides it. Well, the pre, uh, the, the uh, percolation of transgender ideology and the accompanying pronoun debate are rammed into children's faces every day with the help of legal organizations like the ACLU, pro-LGBT groups, public school systems. They've written the importance of transgender ideology into their curriculum, their school bathroom policies, and more. Now, it's no wonder, that uh, then, that the Oreo... Uh, corporation would target this tweet to children for whom this ad might reinforce messages uh, they hear from trusted teachers elsewhere, teachers to whom parents send their children for education. Now, on occasion, even um, grown adults will sneak the crispy biscuit with its cream fill just to taste that manufactured sugar burn. But let's face it, the real consumers are children, teenagers, college students, but especially school aged kids. Even if grown adults were the target audience, it wouldn't be good, but It wouldn't influence as many people. Kids are malleable, they're receptive to advertising, and particularly susceptible to peer pressure. Another brand, Tampax, if I might be so crude as to mention it, the brand that makes um, the product, posted a similar tweet recently, although this one is still more blatant, even given the target uh, consumer age of their product, probably uh, slightly higher, the average girl um, about 10 to 15. Well, the ad says Fact, not all women have periods. Also a fact, not all people with periods are women. Let's celebrate the diversity of all people who bleed, End quote. And again, forgive my crudeness in quoting their ad, but your 10-year-olds are probably reading it, 10 to 12-year-olds. Although tampons exist solely to enable women to handle their business cleanly, this, is, uh, this ad is pretty shockingly explicit in both propagating transgender ideology groupthink and in spreading false information that denies actual biological fact. Now, there's nothing true about the ad, and a brand that caters to a woman's um, product, of all things, should know that. Um, again, it'd be like Oreo claiming to be a Gala Apple, which, of course, it is not. Well, the implication as indicated by the hashtag, is that transgender men, biological girls who uh, want to live as uh, a boy, also would have a period despite being a boy. Of course, unless that's taken, uh, they're taking hormone blockers to add to their transition, they would still have a cycle, but that doesn't make them less female, or worse, a boy with female result. Uh, in any case, uh, this virtue signaling that um, some of the consumer products that are, Kids most enjoy should be, um, parents should certainly be made aware of uh, because it's a message that's being uh, imposed and reinforced not just in a classroom, not just in entertainment media, but by the products that kids uh, enjoy as well. Two examples, but there are many, many others. Keep your eyes and ears open if you intend to be the primary teacher of your kids' values. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to thank James Blend for. Producing Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. We're going to have a bit of fun taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news as well as headlines. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at gRice Show and like us on Facebook.